This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. This is Eric Weaver. Uh, it's a great privilege to be with you today, moderating this discussion on the topic of cultivating physician well-being and the, and the part it plays in the value journey. You know, I think a lot about how physicians are on the front lines of healthcare today, and it's almost like they're going to battle every day. It's it's a metaphor, of course. Physicians almost being on the front lines like combat soldiers, and there's just a profound and unrecognized threat to their own well-being, which is what we now call moral injury. And we often hear that frequently mischaracterized. And combat veterans, we we know it as post-traumatic stress, but in the physician workforce, it's often uh, portrayed as burnout. And there's an understanding of burnout and moral injury in healthcare, and how physicians need to heal in order to provide the best care to patients. And burnout of the physician workforce, it's this constellation of symptoms that include everything from exhaustion and cynicism and decreased productivity. More than half of physicians report at least one of those. And this concept of burnout, it resonates poorly with physicians. It suggests a failure of them, that they're not resourceful or resilient enough. And these are traits that physicians have finally honed over decades and going through intense training and demanding work. I mean, even some of the leading organizations in healthcare like Mayo Clinic uh, report a third of their physicians are experiencing burnout. And this is something that's part of a larger you know, problem, which is just the broken healthcare system. I and mean, we have this complex web of providers with highly conflicted allegiances to patients, to their own self, to employers. And it's intended moral injury is driving up uh, poor outcomes in the healthcare system. And we're now at a tipping point. And this is a, the discussion I wanted to have today with our three exceptional uh, thought leaders. Um, you know, how do we come about uh, uh, developing uh, strategies that are going to improve the, the wellness of our physician workforce? I mean, it, this has to be something more than just mindfulness, meditation, and relaxation techniques. And cognitive behavior therapy and resilience training. This is really about culture, it's about leadership, and it's about really what is at the heart of value-based care. So you're gonna hear from three physician thought leaders about this plight of physician burnout. Uh, you have Dr. Moshe Cohn, a board-certified pediatrician. He specializes in pediatric critical care and hospice and palliative care medicine. He's an associate advisor to the Moral Injury of Healthcare, which is an organization 
that's out there changing the conversation around workforce distress in healthcare. You have Dr. Dyke Drummond, who's a Mayo-trained family practice physician. He's a leading coach, trainer, and consultant. Um, he, his vision is to realize the quadruple aim in healthcare, and he's the CEO and founder of HappyMD.com, which uh, provides training to physicians all across the country. And we have Dr. Amadeo Cabral, who's a board-certified general surgeon. He's a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. Uh, he's an entrepreneur. He's the president and owner of the uh, Quality Surgical Care PA, the Hernia Institute of Florida. And he's also uh, the president of Turning Point Healthcare Consultants. So, uh, gentlemen, I really appreciate your time, your thought leadership today, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. So I thought as we start this conversation, I mean, I, I kind of framed up the problem for you all, you know, and, and it's irrefutable at this point. I mean, there's even a, a recent Medscape uh, survey report that surveyed 13,000 physicians and 60% of them uh, 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 reported burnout. And a lot of it was resulting from administrative and bureaucratic burdens like charting and paperwork. Uh, these physicians reported that they're missing the motivation of having strong patient relationships because of all these administrative burdens. Um, this, this burnout is causing physician turnover in the tune of $260 million annually. I mean, this is um, uh, something that is, is really a problem. And, you know, when we had a prep call on this, uh, I remember uh, all of you saying in solidarity, you know, this burnout issue we have is a leadership failure. You know, this is an issue uh, where many of our leaders in healthcare organizations, they exist in an echo chamber and they're creating this culture uh, where it's ingenuine or even psychopathic in terms of them talking about well-being, talking about patients come first, but they're not really demonstrating the leadership actions to create a truly patient-centered care delivery model. So I wanted to start there and, and get your views on uh, what is actually happening out there uh, on the front lines, if you will, of patient care that's creating this this uh, systemic problem. Well, if I can set a stage, I'd like to take everybody back to when you're physicians. I want you to know that you're dealing with a very special group of people, and we can call it a workforce if you wish, and we can call healthcare an industry if you wish, but it doesn't do justice to what's happening. So all of us physicians, typically in our early 20s, we're at a choice point, a fork in the road where we could go to medical school or we could basically do anything else. And somehow each of us had a little bit different calling to be a helper and a healer and a light worker. And a yearning to be knee to knee behind a closed door with a patient in the conversations that heal, the conversations that offer support when you can't heal. And anything that gets in the way of that anything that gets in the way of us just being patients breaks our spirit, breaks our heart, and gets in the way of production and profit and everything else that happens when you put it into a business. Burnout is a symptom. Burnout is a symptom of overwhelm in a person who cares about what they do and is blocked in their attempts to be a pure expression of healer, helper, and light worker, which is what we're looking for. So anything else that we talk about today, that's what's underlying it. We just wanna see patients. It should be aligned, I would hope. That's what you ought to want us to do too. Because when we're seeing patients from a business perspective, we're generating RVUs, we're dealing with you know, 
taking care of folks in a cost-effective manner. And just remember too, burnout is a marker for an impaired physician too. Quality, safety, patient satisfaction, turnover, the quality of their life, the quality of their family's life, their very life itself is at risk. So it's a really big deal. Yeah, I would uh, dovetail that a little bit and, and bring in what Eric, what you just said about um, we're recognizing burnout. And I certainly want to thank you and the Institute and everybody attending for just being a physician in, in an era now where this is being recognized. It's, it's taken a long time. I think we've recognized it. Perhaps we're recognizing it more now because of the pandemic, but it's been building. But my, my pitch and the pitch where, where we look at this at, um, at the organization I work with, Moral Injury of Healthcare, is that language really matters. Uh, you know, Dyke and, and Amadea, we're, we're going to all go back to how we, we spend hours looking at books and, you know, medical dictionaries, just learning the language of medicine, um, because that's how we communicate with each other. When we're dealing with a patient's, live, a patient's lives, we have to use the right words to make sure we're communicating effectively. And that's just as important here. We are dealing with a public health crisis. And the language that we use is critical. So I'm going to, I'm going to want to take burnout, which like is a hundred percent correct. It's the symptom. Um, but it's also the end stage, like symptom of what's going on. Uh, you mentioned moral injury, Eric, and that's really where a lot of this starts. And I, and I, I want to just take the opportunity to perhaps define that for the people listening. Uh, you mentioned PTSD. Um, it's certainly related and, and the, the, the terminology does come from uh, experience with military veterans uh, it's all over the nursing literature. And finally, in 2017, 2018, it, it popped up in the, in the uh, physician literature. And what it is, is exactly what Dyke is saying about how we come to work every day for one reason, because we have a moral drive to use our God-given abilities to help people, our, our brains, our hands, in whatever way we can. Um, it doesn't make us better than anybody else. It just means it's a choice. We made that choice. That's going to be our career, how we're going to spend our, our time, um, a lot of our time, especially in the training. Um, and so we show up with that moral drive. We want to help somebody. And then something gets in the way. Sometimes it's purposeful. Rarely, I think, it, is it purposeful. I don't think anybody listening here, I don't... Uh, impugn any executive uh, uh, suggests that somebody at the top, a CEO, uh, a manager, administrator, uh, ever has a physician well-being as something that's not important um, or that patient care isn't important. Um, but they're not necessarily thinking about that moral drive when they show up to work every day. I don't know. I know for myself. And I know and I assume that that's the case for my colleagues, my physician colleagues, my nursing colleagues. When there's an obstacle to that, to that moral drive, to that mission, then we are injured. There's something about us, inside us, that is injured. And when it happens over and over and over again, um, we are beaten down and we start questioning whether we want to do it anymore. And for many of us, I can certainly speak for myself, when we start noticing that, when we start noticing, hey, I don't, I don't want to come in. I don't want to see my patients who I've cared about for a really long time. And that's how I've identified my being and how I, how I live my life. Then something's wrong. Um, and so 
that oh that, that repeated moral injury ultimately leads to what you're what we generally call burnout the crazy part is and I, this is how i think i ultimately want to frame it when we talk about i think we've talked about burnout in other in other industries usually we're talking about a workplace problem it's a toxic environment uh, a mean boss um coworkers who you just don't get along with you don't have resources um things about the job and that you keep putting effort into and it just isn't working out and maybe you spent a lot of time and finally you put all that effort and it just crashes you've burned out and you got to do something else you can get to burnout from many directions but the workplace environment is usually the most common for us though Getting to burnout means we've been injured over and over and over again by someone or something or some system saying to us, well, we're sorry you want to care for your patient that way, but we're not going to let you. The system doesn't allow for it. There is a checkbox that wasn't completed and therefore your patient can't get the medication they need, the rehab they need, the nursing care they need, the physicians they need. If we we experience that over and over again, then we're burned out not from a job, we're burned out from this mission. So that's, that's the starting point for me. And I think it's important that anybody who's interested in this and working on this on the leadership side, start there uh, rather than on the business end. It's, this is, this is the, the, the table, this is the table we're setting here where we have to start talking. And I love to hear your views as well, Dr. Cabral. Uh, what can leadership do to, to really ameliorate the suffering that's happening in the physician workforce? Thank you. And, and, and once again, it's a pleasure being here. And I, I echo the sentiments from, from Dyke in motion. Uh, we, we have to uh, first fundamentally realize that, you know, when people talk about a public health emergency, they tend to think of something explosive that happens overnight. Uh, so, for example, the pandemic is a great example of this. But this physician burnout, this provider burnout, is the classic slow boiling pot of water. And until it gets to that breaking point, which then it's a complete breaking point, the whole system looks to plug and play. It's to commodi commoditize all us providers because some few people, quote unquote, can't handle it. But the reality of this problem is severe, and we're getting more and more literature, even just out of, out of the uh, oven. The New York Times published an article. It was a 10-year research. You're talking about 60%, two out of three physicians. The advisor board did about 170 observational studies recently published. Again, two and three. Uh, there is, the, fundamentally speaking, uh, uh, and uh, to Dyke's point as well, is that there's this incongruence between the business of medicine, that is the incentives of the healthcare system or healthcare organization, versus the incentives of the physician to do their work, to take care of their patients, and to establish a relationship. And so, so we have competing incentives right now. Uh, and unfortunately, when we talk about a broken health system that's $4 trillion, uh, it's not a broken business model. It's a broken healthcare model. And where, what's the leadership right now is the business model. So the business model is taking uh, the leadership position. And I think what's imperative is that the physicians have to be at the table. 
we can no longer be part of the menu. Uh, we have to be at the table and we have to find a way to gather some congruency, which was everything that Moshi spoke about as well as Dyke, and at the same time to have a system that survives. And I think that's the key thing. How do we get these incentives to merge? Well, I wanted to stay on this topic, uh, gentlemen, on the state of our broken system. I mean, clearly fee-for-service healthcare has destroyed the physician-patient relationship. It's depersonalized care delivery. I mean, we now see that patient encounters are often looked at as transactions and patients often as ATM machines. Instead of having true opportunities to forge long-term healing relationships. And, you know, it's so different than the old Marcus Welby days of delivering holistic patient-centered healthcare. And consequently, we have this inexorably broken healthcare system that is delivering bad cost and quality outcomes. We've seen primary care marginalized because of how lucrative it is to have a uh, uh, high-cost specialists and proceduralists that are just uh, generating volume and RVUs. And it's almost like we have this perfect storm of physician burnout and moral injury. And the suffering in the physician workforce, you know, I see it as the canary in the coal mine. You know, it's, 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 it's a, um, a symptom of a more systemic problem. And, you know, it's tragic that, you know, we're now seeing data that shows that physicians are killing themselves twice uh, that of active duty military members. And I mean, it's clearly signaling that something is wrong with the overall system. So, I, you know, I think about, you know, the work that uh, many, many of us on this call do in, in, in value-based care. You know, uh, the IHI and Don Berwick uh, coined this term called the triple aim, which is really about defining value-based care in terms of uh, lower per capita costs, better patient experience, higher quality outcomes. And then consequently, since the inception of that model, many are saying, you know, we need a quadruple aim. We need to really look at physician satisfaction as an important aspect of value-based care. Well, if I can just correct the record here, Don Berwick brought out the quadruple aim as an apology for the triple aim. It just, just failed. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, home. that's, I didn't know that. But, it was an apology. <laughs> well, let, let's let's talk about this quadruple aim. I mean, how do you define value-based care? Because, I mean, we see all this confusion in the marketplace. Many are thinking of value-based care strictly in terms of payment models and aligning incentives. Patients are confused. They don't know what the heck it is. They think it's a, a Big Mac, you know, in terms of value. Like, they don't, they think higher cost is better quality. So how would you define value-based care? And where does this concept of physician wellness fit within that construct? Well, I, you know, it's so it's funny. So, I, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's so funny because, uh, again, the whole value-based care, right, uh, which has become also uh, another euphemism for another business model, uh, where it, the true value-based care is a wellness model. So it goes against uh, the sickness model, the CPT code model. It's, it's a DRG model the value base. It's taking care of diseases and trying to keep people out of the hospital. It's trying to keep people at home. It's trying to minimize the overuse of specialists. Uh, like we've seen in, in my past uh, as a chief strategy officer in ACO, where you have a, you know, specialists seeing patients uh, 10 times more than the primary care physician in one year, where data has clearly showed that they do not do better. In fact, more stuff gets done to the patient and the outcomes are worse. 
And when it comes to the physician then, it became a procedural thing. It became if you check all these blanks or you, or you cross all these T's, you're going to get paid 2% uh, more of your fees. So now it became, oh, let's make sure, forget about Mrs. Jones, let's make sure that all of those T's are crossed, all those I's are dotted, and, 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 that's, and that's, that's not value. That's just another business model. You know, yeah. true value-based care is population health management, is a wellness model. Yeah, right, right, right before um, we started today, I was just actually just jotting down a few things, one of which was, how are we defining value? Who set that, who, who makes that definition? The triple aim, so you can just start there. Before we even get to physician well-being, because I think, I think making, uh, making it a quadruple aim actually does a disservice to physicians. The physician well-being should be a given. If you don't have that, forget about an aim. If, it, if it's a problem, it has to be fixed before any of the other things are gonna work. But going back to the triple aim, if you can remind Eric, what what it was it was right patient experience, cost and and cost quality. and outcome, right and quality, right. So now patient experience, in theory, is measurable um, somehow. Uh, I don't want to get into the issues there in terms of how that affects uh, physician well-being. There are issues there, but let's say there's an there's a way we can provide a good experience. We know that and there are good uh, you know advertisers, business models where you can give people. Uh, a good experience. Cost, well, that can be addressed too, somewhat objectively. And in fact, uh, our entire cost model for healthcare is fairly arbitrary, right? I could, if I want to buy a television and I go to PC Richards versus Best Buy, I can probably get the same TV for within a couple of hundred dollars difference in price, depending on who's having a sale. Um, but why does a knee replacement cost $50,000 in one hospital and down the street costs $100,000? That, that doesn't sound like uh, a normal way of doing business. So cost is something that could clearly be addressed by whoever it is, the people behind the curtain that decide what that is. But as a physician, the only thing we really care about is those outcomes. And for as long as most of us can remember, certainly our training and the decades that led up to our training, those outcomes meant that we ended our day with a patient feeling better than they did when they, when they woke up in the morning. They, they came to see us, where either our office or our hospital, and we did something to help them. And that's the outcome we're looking for. Or it's something that affected their lives, maybe it's a week later, a month, a year, five years later. We did something to intervene to help them, um, or we did some preventive work. We said, hey, you know, change your diet, exercise, and find a way to connect with them. We have to have that connection in order for those things to work, certainly. So those outcomes were the things that we were aiming for, and yet somewhere along the way, someone else decided what those outcomes should be. And those outcomes ended up being, well, did we check the box of the guideline that was created around a CPT code, that was a, created around a diagnosis, not around a person. Um, and so that, that aim, what's built in there is, well, how do we get to those outcomes? We need to be okay to get to those outcomes. So I'll, I turn that around to what does value really mean? If you ask us what value means, you're gonna get one answer. If you ask 
um, healthcare leadership and administrators, I think you get a very different answer. Again, we're not talking, this, we're not speaking the same language. Well, and I would say it's important that to acknowledge that you don't want to turn super tankers if you don't have to. So I'm dealing with burned out doctors every day who call us on the internet for acute support. And so we need to be able to help them right away. And so one of the things I know is that since most of them are employees, what we have to do is help them carve out a place for a more rewarding practice within the reality of the business model where they live. So the word value right now simply is a business side buzzword to talk about capitation. And let's just talk about the fact that capitation actually produces a healthier workplace and could potentially produce better outcomes because you don't have to spin the fee-for-service wheel to make the money that you need inside a capitated system. It's paid at the first of the month. And most capitated systems that I've dealt with have higher numbers of people in the front lines of actual primary care offices. So they will upstep with pharmacy and social work and therapists and all that kind of stuff in the front end. And for the physician, the day typically, an ordinary family doc goes from 28, 30 patients a day, fee-for-service, fast as you can with somebody always pushing you in the back, goes down to more like what you would see in a concierge practice, right? It would be like 10 or 12 or 15 people, and you go a little deeper and a little wider. So potentially, it makes for a better experience for the physician. But what ends up happening is I see over and over again people who practice what they call high-value care stop there and say, we're a better business model, it's healthier for the doctors, and they start spouting quadruple aim. By the way, anytime anybody says quadruple aim, except on this, on this conversation, it's a marketing ploy and it's complete horse pucky. So just forget about it. It's always a tech company. They want a robot doctor. They don't want to have to deal with this. But let me just make it really clear. The business side of the organization enforces the fundamentals of the business model. If you're a manager, you're trying to squeeze a square doctor into a round hole. You have to, I believe, ethically, if you're working in healthcare as a non-clinician, if you're not seeing patients, but you've chosen to work in healthcare, you must have some respect for the healing encounter. How do I know that you are concerned about the doctors and the nurses and the techs and the patients and the things that go on behind closed door? It's really easy to tell. Do you shadow your providers or not? Do you shadow your providers or not? And I have been around the country in front of thousands and thousands of doctors all around the world. And I said to the leaders of the organizations, raise your hand if you regularly shadow your doctors. In, in a room of 100, I might get two. That is the breakdown. Because if in your heart, building a better practice, taking better care of patients, which in either revenue model is supported by making more money, if, if in your heart you cared about that, if you shadow just once, you'll be appalled, appalled, chagrined, you know, you're going to want to put a gun to your head about how many obstructions that you put in the way of your people offering quality care and making the kind of money that you're asking for. But nobody shadows. That's what we mean by a leadership failure.
So we can call it value-based care, upstaff the front office, do primary care, absolutely. Pay more, pay more time and attention to the folks that have more comorbidities, absolutely. We are with you. Just get all of the other stuff out of our way. Let's go. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and say, uh, okay. you know, pay, pay our pediatricians better, self-serving. But, you know, from the, just from the perspective, and I only thought about this when I was a few years into practice, right? But what's the measure of, uh, of how much we care about our children in this country, right? It's how much we're willing to invest. Right. So what are we investing in education in this country? What are we investing in mental health? And what are we investing in medical health? Um, pediatricians, the lowest paid physicians in the country. I'm not saying that because I'm asking for more, more money, but because it's simply a reflection of uh, how the, the child with, an ammon with pneumonia, that the care for that child is reimbursed at an unbelievably lower level than an adult with the pneumonia. Um, why that should be, I still haven't figured out. Uh, if someone would care to explain it to me, I would I'm all ears. But it's just, again, it's, a, it's emblematic of what is that, what do we care about? Why are we here? It's, it's so amazing uh, how inverted those values are that when you go to through, uh, true uh, uh, systems of medicine in other countries, which can get criticized here for ideological perspectives, but not for outcomes. That's what's amazing. You can, uh, how it's more inverted, right? How pediatricians, family practice, uh, internal medicine, uh, are, are in the lower part, and that's why you don't see those billboards on the highway, right? Uh, it's all about uh, MSK, and it's all about uh, cardiovascular, and all the things that generate not just that initial service, but expansive uh, profit-making, uh, you know, secondary and tertiary services that spawn from it. But that's our fee-for-service model, you know. But my, my kid gets sick, and the pediatrician is God. I, I, I run my wife says, what do you think we should do? I said, we should go to the pediatrician. Uh, and, 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 and that's the true measure of the value of a provider. Uh, and, and, I, and I've seen uh, other very high-level executives run just as fast as I do uh, to the pediatrician when that's the time to come. Uh, the other part of the scale and value that I think we need to look at a lot is the, these last six months of life. And I think that causes also a tremendous burden on physicians uh, when they have the inability to be able to sit and talk with the patient and the family member and ask them, did you really want all this done? Do you really want all these ER admissions? Do you really want all these interventions? Uh, uh, well, they make a lot of money, so they don't want you to talk about that either. And then you have uh, these, this percentage of patients uh, with a terrible quality, end of life, terrible quality of life for their family members. And I've seen a lot of physicians really burn out when they're dealing with this group of population because they know that the, the end is inevitable. Uh, but, but now they're caught in the middle of this tug of war. Uh, and uh, so, so you got both sides of the spectrum. You know, you got the child care and then you got the elderly care at the end. And, and those are causes of, of, of just significant uh, the stress on the system and specifically on the providers where nurses look at you and say, what are we doing here? Why? Well, it's classically American and classically built on a multi-payer fee-for-service system. So I have some people in my uh, community that are hospital at home, outpatient internists in Ireland. 
And Ireland has little tiny hospitals that are difficult to get to, and they don't have very many beds. Because when you get triaged in Ireland, what's the first, what's the first decision they have to make? Hospice, or are we actually gonna care for you? And they make the decision. No, you don't have something we can fix. You're going home on hospice. And then when they say, okay, you have something we're gonna treat, are you in septic shock? No, you're going home. And we're gonna treat you at home because we have comprehensive outpatient services, right? So if you apply those principles of value-based care to the American healthcare system, 80% of our hospital beds go away. And I'll say confidently, if we could run that experiment, right? 80% of the hospital beds in America are unnecessary if we granted our society the ability to answer the questions about what is and is not a reasonable investment in quality of life. We've created a system where, uh, much like in the fast food industry, right? You want it and you want it now, and um, you know you want to make it happen. And the 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 physicians and nurses and healthcare workers are the ones making that happen. Um, and then above us are are the um, the business leaders and executives who are uh, creating a some kind of framework that facilitates that. But the reality is that we're, we then end up stuck into a system that was created by advertising diseases, some of which exist, some of which don't, by advertising procedures, some of which may be better than uh, you know, what the gold standard used to be, maybe not. Uh, you know, we could talk for days about, you know, open versus laparoscopic appendectomies and all the, you know, the, what's gone back and forth with stuff like that. So we, what's so great about this country, right, is that we have, we have hope for everything. We have hope that something's going to get better, whether we make it better with technology, we, we make it better with discovery and innovation. And that's what our, you know, competitive nature breeds. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can fix everything. And it doesn't mean that just because we have something shiny and new, um, we should just sell it if it's not going to help the patients. And at, the more we layer that on, the more we add those things, um, we've completely forgotten why we did it to begin with. I, I just want to pinch your cheeks. You're so cute. It's like, just because we can make money, we shouldn't sell it. Like, who's going to agree with that? <laughs> this is America, man. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, I wanted to get. To, you don't have to work for them, but somebody's going to sell it for money. Well, Dyke, you were talking about the the need to respect the healing encounter, and the best thing that leaders could do is to shadow the physician Absolutely. and understand. So, I, I wanted to get back to what we were talking about earlier, and 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 I don't think Moshe, you wanted to get go there, but I wanted to. I'll, I'll take us there. You know, this this check the box. Uh, system that we currently have, you know, and let, let's just look at the triple aim, for example, you know, one of those um, uh, key performance indicators is patient experience. And it has one meaning for executives and one meaning for physicians, you know, physicians live it, they value the relationship, executives want the score, you know, and I'm just thinking about, you know, how can you expect physicians to have a five-star rating with their patients on experience when the doctor only rates their experience as a two-star. I mean, uh, I'm just thinking about like what patients value isn't what executives value in the experience. You know, executives are thinking about the environment of care in terms of having 
good Wi-Fi and waterfalls and marble floors and convenience ah. and, and patience. In thinking about I want relationship. Rather, so, uh, 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 not not for profit has waterfalls. Not for profit. <laughs> right, right. You know, I do, I do want to, I do want to say something, Eric, uh, regarding the patient experience, because I think uh, patient experience, as well as quality measures, have been weaponized against the provider, uh, and have been uh, one of the main triggers uh, to physician burnout uh, outside of the EHR and and now the pandemic. You know, patient, uh, it's a, it's 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 a conflict of interest, patient satisfaction. When you sit down with the patient who demands antibiotics for a viral cold and you spend 15 minutes explaining to them that this is not a bacteria, that antibiotics are not uh, required, in fact, they can have uh, adverse effects, and then the patient walks out and says, well, I'll go to someone else because that's what I want, and when they get their uh, evaluation form of that physician, he gets a three-star for practicing good medicine. Uh, uh, you know, because he, and, and this is just a small example. The quality measures example of how it's weaponized, and I've seen it is, uh, one of the things that got me out of big health systems is when I would be in meetings and 30% uh, of the members in that meeting were physicians uh, working uh, 12 hours a day. And then the other, you know, 70% were holding clipboards uh, and telling doctors they're not full, they're not filling those, checking those boxes. Uh, the quality measures have to translate in actual quality outcomes. And a lot of quality measures we've known have no impact on outcome and cost. They were nice and shiny and they were put there and, and we say we did this and we checked that and everything like that. So then they're weaponized against the provider because, well, that's my job. My job is to hold the clipboard and Dr. Drummond, I'm sorry. Uh, you only filled out, even though you work 12 hours a day for the past five days, 80% of these boxes. Uh, your patients were happy. Uh, you practiced good medicine. You did not prescribe antibiotics when you shouldn't have. But boy, you're not doing a good job, Dr. Drummond. Uh, boy, that, uh, that, that is just another weapon just to further attack the physician. And what you have now is a, the majority of us are compliant not committed yeah. and there's a big difference between compliance and compliance can go to several levels from begrudgingly to ah whatever they want they want this sign sign it that's zombie not that's not patient uh, you know Amadeo, um, i, I want to it reminds me of something and, and i don't think i shared this with you guys on our on our on our prep call um it, it's the kind of thing that when you do it enough and um i'm only a little younger than the two of you and i i, I sort of I was trained in a transition period where in medical school, I was taught how to really write a good note, a good story about my patient to make sure that I'm communicating effectively the things that I saw, the important parts of the patient's life and illness. Um, and then transitioned into, into postgraduate training, residency and fellowships where we we're really heavily on check boxes and EMRs. Um, and it becomes ingrained in you when, oh, I got to make sure I got my note in on time. I got to make sure. I, why? I don't really know why. I just know someone's going to yell at me if I don't. A few years ago, I took care of a little girl who unfortunately suffered a catastrophic uh, brain bleed. And I knew that she wasn't going to survive. I took care of her for all of eight hours uh, from the time she got to the hospital until she passed. Um, I stayed, this was in the middle of the night, so 
uh, I, I stayed to make sure I spoke to the parents uh, and then to speak with the staff. Once everything was sort of settled down and quieter, to make sure the staff was okay, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, anybody involved in the care of that child. And at around two in the morning, I was ready to take my bag and go home. And this instinct, this um, <coughs> habit, I'm gonna say, but I instantly went to the computer and sat down to write my notes because I was afraid and I knew that if I didn't write them down right then and there, someone was gonna yell at me the next day. And just realizing that was just such, it was very painful. That's exactly the end result of this, this moral injury of what Dr. Cabral is talking about. I mean, to check, to check that box, was that the important thing at that time? Right, normally we write things down so we can communicate to other physicians, perhaps non-clinicians and to, and to um, patients themselves these days. But in this case, it was simply a box to check. And yet I was afraid that someone was going to uh, you know, sanction me or criticize me or whatever um, for not having done that. that. That's where we are. Yeah, patient satisfaction, and I've written about this, should never be 100% unless you're a criminal physician, you know, you'll, you'll give anything to anybody and pretty soon they're gonna be paying you for that because people will get a reputation for giving anything to everybody. So I'm not joking when I say that. Um, patient satisfaction is related to your ability to be fully present with your patient, to sit down, take a breath, look them in the eye, push the computer off to the side and be there. The first thing that flies out of the way when you're overstressed and burned out. Um, I challenge anybody who thinks they're on the value journey or ever uses the word value in any C-suite discussion or any discussion with doctors to go all the way, go beyond the business model, build a culture of support and always be shadowing your providers and wringing the stress out of the systems of care. Do it. Take it all the way. There should be a significant corporate proactive burnout prevention strategy to go with your value-based revenue model. And then last, any of you that have value-based contracts, so for instance, if I'm a doctor and our organization accepts 20 payers and two of these payers have capitated contracts but the rest don't, you're not gonna get your doctors to change their behavior. What you wanna do is create a pilot where 100% of the patients that come to this doctor are paid for by capitation. It's all within a consistent yeah. ecosystem. If you, if you do your pilots on a mixed payer uh, setup, It'll ne you'll never see the behavior that you want out of the doctors because it's not, it's, it's, it can't be congruent. So when I go to things like America's physician groups and other groups that are on so-called value journey and have a blended payer mix. And by the way, this is why quality in America is such a bugaboo. It's been weaponized. It's not that the government is the single payer and they have one quality indicator you have to comply with. Your business office accepts 60 payers and they've got 60 different ones you have to comply with. That's America for you right there. And by the way, our healthcare system in terms of outcare is abysmal. There's no other first world country that would put up with two years in a row, life expectancy in the United States going down, bottom in the first world in every measure you want to, to, to look at. Crazy. And add, add to that, Dyke, if you look at G20, and we did mention this in our, in our prelim talk, you look at uh, of the $4 trillion administrative, 
okay, the whole slice of administrative is over 30%. Right. The closest countries are 9 to 10% of their to global health care budget uh, and for worse outcomes, okay? Uh, and, and if you look at, for example, growth in non-clinical jobs from the 1970s versus providers, it's 200% for providers, it's 3,500% for non-clinical provider. And by the way, that line goes with the uh, health expenditure line. <laughs> it's, it's the same, it's the same right. slope. That's right. a great so, statistic. So, yeah. Um, so everybody needs to make sure they're adding value. Everybody needs to make sure they're adding value in terms of more and better outcomes. Well, I, I wanted to stay on this topic of uh, culture. So we've talked a lot about leadership in the traditional administrative executive role, but I want to talk about physician leadership and where we are with the current challenges of shifting the paradigm. Uh, for physician leadership to really lead us into a new era, it's almost like we have to overcome some of the conditioning that takes place in the medical profession where instead of being uh, a cowboy, you worry it's autocratic, you know, it's my way or the highway almost. We have to deconstruct the, the delivery paradigm where you're thinking about the model of the team and it's interdependent, it's interconnected, you disperse leadership, you have a de decentralized power structure. You're really thinking more about physicians being a quarterback where you're facilitating handoffs and team-based care. And I, I wanted to ask you just where in terms that uh, dispersion of leadership and having more of a team-based approach to patient-centered care models, where that fits into the physician wellness side of the equation. So, so just for, just remember real quickly that our medical school curriculum is over 100 years old. Uh, talk about a monolithic uh, structure uh, where where exactly we're, we're we're competing against each other from the beginning till till residency. It's the most individualistic uh, system of training uh, there is. Uh, sometimes I've I've had friends who were in systems where there were no friendships. Uh, I mean, that's terrible. Uh, so, so our ultra-competitive, ultra-individualistic upbringing in the medical field in this country is pervasive. So that's a big problem. Uh, now, now, second, uh, so I would just to yes. modify that slightly. As someone, you know, I've been teaching in medical schools for uh, the past 10 years. And what's even worse uh, is that there are some schools that are trying, right, to change that model, whether it's by um, having courses on empathy and ethics and expanding the approach to um, a wider or more holistic model, including team-based care. But then what happens? They graduate. You're smiling. I know, right? You graduate and you're dumped into the system that completely deprioritizes that, that motivation to provide that, that holistic care, right. to really work it, it, as a team. And so as a physician, we are siloed with our, within our own uh, you know, medical staff offices. The nurses are siloed with their own staffing uh, admins. The respiratory therapists, physical therapists, all the various clinicians, we're all separated from one another. We are never at the table together to actually talk about how to do what you're talking about, Eric. The one exception I would say that I've experienced is in, is in high quality palliative care, um, where it's actually required for us to have a team of people like that. Um, but many hospitals don't even have uh, the, the staffing to provide those teams. 
Um, in pediatrics, I think it happens a little bit uh, more so, I think, than in adult medicine. I think perforce. It, it takes a village beyond the village uh, with, with pediatric care. But by and large, the, the system is just not built for that. No matter how much we might, uh, you know, fix education, which we need to do, but if the system isn't, isn't geared toward it, that's, a, that's, a, that's its own problem. Well, let me just say to the people who are not doctors, no doctor in med school or residency ever takes a leadership class. We don't learn how to do this. We absorb it through osmosis. And we all agree, us having to make the diagnosis and nobody can move until I give them orders and then they can only do what I tell them to is a terrible, terrible leadership model. But the bigger challenge occurs upstream. The bigger challenge is, Administrators don't ask. They impose systems. I mean, quality initiatives. There's not administrators saying, there's not doctors saying what to measure. It's coming straight through from the payers. And as far as team care, team-based health goes, let's just stop for a second because we solved burnout. Teamcaremedicine.com, Jim Jerzak at Beelin Health, Corey Lyon at the Apex program at the University of Colorado have upstaffed the outpatient office environment and eliminated burnout and turnover and improved quality and patient satisfaction. What did they do? They defied the MGMA staffing averages, which are actually a cause of burnout, not a best practice. And they put two and a half to three and a half scribing MAs in the back office with every single physician. All your problems go away and you make more money. This has been solved. This has been solved. What stops it is your CFO looks at the fact that you have to hire more MAs and says no, because the CFO has never shadowed a doctor. So it's all, it's all kind of crazy, but let me say that again. Teamcaremedicine.com. Go look at their flow diagrams. Jim Jerzak, J-E-R-Z-A-K, Belin, B-E-L-L-I-N, Health in Wisconsin, and Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, Lyon, L-Y-O-N, University of Colorado, Apex programs. It was published in the American Family Practice Literature. It's all there. You don't have to do anything except implement those in your outpatient clinics and team-based geographic rounding on your hospitalist services. You make almost all of this go away. Well, I have uh, a, I, I have a full, full support, I'm sorry, of team-based care. Full supporter also as well. And, and the only thing I want to add about the leadership question, because I've, I've had that situation in my life and see the, the effects that it has. When you are a practicing physician and you realize that you need to be more involved in leadership positions, and now you have to cross the schism, right? You go to the other side. You're talking about two worlds that are w working in parallel. One of the most difficult things for physicians who have tried and those that have succeeded is trying to balance your practice and do leadership uh, uh, endeavors uh, and try to help out and be involved because you have, you're, you have one foot in one canoe and another foot in another canoe. And of course, when they call you for a meeting, uh, and this happened to me all the time, it would be the day before I have a full office. Oh, by the way, at 10 o'clock, we're going to have a, a meeting about, uh, you know, the next, uh, you know, the next quality measures and the next, well, I'm, that's the, the middle of my office. So do I cancel all my patients? Or can we try to find ways to include the docs at times when it's more appropriate for them, even though the non-docs have to maybe stay a little later? Because we do that a lot. Or, 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 or how about when, you're, uh, when you've been in the ICU for 24 hours 
and you're post call and they say, oh, you know, we need you to attend a department meeting at, you know, 9 a.m. after I should have been home and in bed. Oh, and you're not paid correct. either right. and oh, not no. given protected time. <laughs> correct. Yep. Well, mm-hmm. correct. So, so leadership in healthcare too is we're against a rock and a hard place to try to even to get into leadership positions unless we decide to just forfeit our practice, forfeit everything we did, and then just do administrative. And then it's what's called we jump on the other side. Then, then what do you do? You lose complete contact to the people you're actually having to take care of. And, and, and do what's best for them. What, what's amazing is, Dyke, you sort of put this so well, right? We are the, the number one resource that, that this country has in terms of healthcare, right, is, is your frontline healthcare workers, the people at the bedside. Um, and from a business model, you would think that's what you would want to invest in. And yet somehow that hasn't happened at all. Um, I mean, forget not at all. In fact, it's been beaten down. You know, weaponizing, um, weaponizing all of the things we've talked about, I would advise, I would suggest anybody here take a look at the New York Times, um, Danielle Ofri, who's an a internist in, at, at NYU in Bellevue Hospital in New York, uh, has written a lot about this. But one of the most important pieces I've seen is when she basically says, healthcare leadership is taking us for granted. Doctors and nurses are being taken for granted. It's dependent wow. upon exploitation of the doctors. That's the headline of this. Dependent of the- right, and it's not it's not malicious. I don't mean to say that anyone out there is you know means ill towards us, but the bottom line is we will never abandon our patients. That resource, can you imagine? Have, take advantage of the fact that we won't abandon them. So we need to use that in a way to provide all the things you're talking about. And it, not only should it not cost what it's costing us, but it should cost a hell of a lot less. At some point, all of us are placed in a situation where we have to make a decision. Should I go the extra mile, even though it's unhealthy for me and my family, yes. for this patient, despite the fact that everything about this organization is getting in my way? Should I put in the extra work? Well, gentlemen, it's been a great discussion, and I want to continue this conversation uh, in a series of discussions, and we had talked about that initially because this is simply too big of an issue to scratch the surface, and um, one of the the insights that I had when we initially uh, were uh, preparing for this call, you know, I had used the word solution. You know, we need to come out with a come up with a solution for this, and, and you corrected me very, all of you said, no, this is a strategy. So uh, I thought, you know, before we uh, go into the conclusion comments and and everything uh, and wrap things up, can you give me like maybe one to be continued like strategy discussion that we could have as we look to maybe do another podcast on this topic or webinar? The simplest way to prevent burnout is a pair of strategies operating in parallel and simultaneously. Every one of the people who draws a paycheck from your organization must have their own personal canary burnout prevention strategy. And the organization must have a proactive coal mine strategy to wring stress out of the system and build a more supportive culture at the level of the organization. Dyke, I I also loved what you said about um, any administrator who makes decisions that affect frontline workers should be absolutely required to shadow them. I mean, think about what we do. We shadow each other. When we train, 
um, we shadow each other because we have to learn from each other. But in doing so, we also gain respect for each other. M my own uh, one line there would be stop blaming the physicians and the nurses. Stop blaming healthcare workers for their quote unquote lack of resilience. We are the most resilient people out there. This is By beyond far. us. You have no right to blame us for anything or even point out what we might do different if you've never shadowed us. You, you know, I, I think, you know, of, of the many things we saw with COVID and that could be six hours of conversation to for people in our country to realize that essential workers, nurses, teachers, uh, the people that do housekeeping, that the, the providers, all of a sudden epiphany, oh, these people are really important. It took a pandemic. It took a pandemic for, for us to reset our values. And I think what we have to do in healthcare organizations is we have to reset our values. And I think it's been explained here that it can be done and it still can be profitable. Well, that's a great uh, way to, I think, conclude our conversation today. Gentlemen, I wanted to thank you all for sharing your insights. I uh, appreciate all the work you're doing to really uh, make a better industry for all of us and, and most importantly, our patients. We look forward to seeing you and uh, future programs that we put on to support the industry as it advances towards value-based care.